This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and Law.com. Welcome to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Leslie Gromis Baker. I'm the co-chair of the Government Relations Group at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. We're fortunate to welcome a wonderful guest on our show today, Tom McGough. Tom is UPMC's Chief Legal Officer. Prior to joining UPMC, he was a partner at an AMLAW 100 firm, where he also served as a member of the Executive Committee and as Chairman of the Litigation Department. Tom received his law degree from the University of Virginia and then clerked for Judge Collins J. Seitz of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circus and Justice William H. Rehnquist of the Supreme Court of the United States. He returned to Pittsburgh in 1980, serving as an assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania before going into private practice in 1982. In 1987, Senator Bob Dole, then minority leader of the U.S. Senate, appointed Tom as associate counsel to the Senate committee investigating the Iran-Contra affair. Tom, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Leslie. We appreciate you joining us and taking the time, and uh, so we'll get started. Tom, your resume is extensive. Could you tell the audience your top professional accomplishments? Well, when you've been practicing law as long as I have, you can accumulate quite a bit of history. But in overview, I spent the bulk of my career as a trial lawyer at a Pittsburgh-based law firm that ultimately grew into a global firm, um, now the largest office for that firm is in London. Um, For the last 10 years, I've been fortunate to be at UPMC uh, riding the healthcare roller coaster. Uh, Along the way, I've worked for all three branches of federal government, so it's been a rich and uh, uh, rewarding experience. Your background's very impressive, and you've had some amazing experiences. Can you tell us in detail what it was like serving as the associate counsel to the Senate Iran-Contra Committee during the Iran-Contra affair? Well, today, trying to describe uh, what was going on in Washington in 1987 is like trying to describe an alternative universe. Um, But basically, you had President Ronald Reagan, who allegedly was selling missiles to Iran in order to secure the release of some U.S. hostages who were over there and then taking the money and giving it to insurgents who were trying to overthrow the government of Nicaragua. Um, There were simultaneous investigations into uh, this caper by uh, both the House and the Senate, um, as well as by a presidentially appointed commission and a a special prosecutor. Um, the, The word impeachment was thrown around quite a bit Um, And I was brought into this situation by uh, then Senator Bob Dole, who was uh, the minority leader of the U.S. Senate, and I was brought in as associate counsel. Um, I I served on the Senate committee, which was chaired by Senator Dan Inouye and uh, Senator Warren Rudman, a Democrat and Republican who, uh, and this is sort of unheard of today, got along very well and decided that uh, the investigation that our committee would conduct would be completely bipartisan. Um, And it was. 
um, despite the high stakes and a firestorm of publicity, televised congressional hearings, lots of screaming and yelling, uh, Congress did its job and issued a joint uh, House-Senate report all within a year of the beginning of the investigation. Um, and then the very next year, there was a presidential election that was conducted and everybody moved on. Um, I can't imagine that ever happening today, indeed, or ever happening again. What role did you play in that? I was associate counsel to the Senate committee. The counsel for the Senate committee was a, a gentleman named Arthur Lyman, who was a very pro uh, prominent New York lawyer um, and litigator. Uh, and so I reported to him, and it was our job to straddle both the Republican senators and the Democratic senators on the committee and to throw all the pitches down the middle of the plate um, as best we could. Great. Okay, so we'll speed ahead 40 years and here you are at UPMC. Tell us about what is the most rewarding aspect of your job. Um, I spend most of my time trying to keep the people who deliver life-saving and life-enhancing care in a position to do their jobs. Uh, and that is often its own reward. Um, uh, I, a week doesn't go by when someone doesn't uh, find out I worked at UPMC and say, oh yeah, um, you helped me with this or your people did that or you saved my mother's life. Um, and so I get my I get my reward in regular doses that way. And what are your greatest challenges? Well, lately, of course, it's the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, that's forced every healthcare system in the country and maybe the world um, to consider all the what ifs. Um, it's put a maximum strain on the global healthcare system. Um, and and when you get to those stress points uh, in, uh, in health in uh, healthcare, uh, people tend to turn to the lawyers and ask questions like, ask the what ifs. You know, what if we have two patients and only one ventilator? Um, what if we can't get enough staff to operate the equipment we have um, uh, to treat the patients? Uh, what sorts of, of uh, uh, legal restrictions are there on our ability to flex care in one direction or another? Uh, and as I said, those, those deep questions tend to wind up on the desks of lawyers uh, in a situation like this. Speaking of the pandemic, what has UPMC done to stay at the forefront of collaborating with and advising federal, state, and local governments? Um, well, fortunately, um, we have, our system is very large. We have 40 hospitals. Um, we have more than 5,000 employed physicians. Um, and we have, on the one hand, we've determined that we will not be overwhelmed. Uh, and we have not been overwhelmed in this pandemic. We've been extraordinarily busy uh, from, uh, uh, from the beginning uh, up and to and including the present time. But there are a lot of hospitals, uh, particularly those in smaller systems or standalone hospitals that just aren't that fortunate and are far more stressed uh, than we are. That's allowed us to essentially take on a leadership role, um, both uh, locally and nationally. Um, uh, at the local level, 
we have been holding press conferences uh, once every week or two weeks to basically brief the public on what's going on, um, both as far as capacity concerns, um, new treatments, uh, approaches to the, uh, to the uh, uh, pandemic. At the state level, we, uh, spot, we uh, helped to uh, draft and got sponsored uh, legislation that created a regional uh, region by region um, uh, SWAT team, if you will, of hospitals and health systems to offer aid to skilled nursing facilities who really are on the front line of this pandemic. That's where the most acute need is. Um, and um, many, many of our skilled nursing facilities are just, have not been equipped or are in a position to handle the sorts of issues that they have to face in this pandemic, which disproportionately affects the elderly and the, and the, and the sick. Uh, and then at the federal level, we're working directly with the White House to uh, promote the use and provide for the administration of monoclonal antibodies as a, uh, as a therapy for COVID in its early symptomatic stages. That's proven to be very, very uh, successful. Uh, and uh, uh, really necessary. Tell us what innovations have gone on under your leadership within the council's office. Well, when I came to UPMC 10 years ago, the legal department was really non-existent. The, the lawyers uh, for the system, and there were about 30 of them, were dispersed throughout the operational units of the of the. Uh, of the enterprise. Um, and the first thing I did was gather them together as an organizational matter um, and create a legal department organized like a law firm with specialty practice groups and leaders and, um, and that sort of thing. Um, I believe that lawyers work best uh, in close proximity and in collaboration with other lawyers. And so it was important to me to get all the, uh, all the lawyers under one organizational roof. Um, uh, we then worked hard to create multiple channels for collaboration across geography and across specialty groups. Um, and we try to keep that going as much as possible. Uh, along those same lines, each year, I hold what we call our outside council conference, where we invite all our in-house lawyers, as well as all the uh, outside lawyers who have done work for us in the past year, uh, to gather in a place um, and for a day and just talk about all things UPMC and try to get everybody on the same page so that they understand us and we understand them. Um, and that's proved uh, invaluable. We, um, we uh, did not have one in 2019 or 2020 because of the pandemic, but we just reconvened a couple of weeks ago for the first time in person, uh, 120 lawyers strong um, and it really was a tremendous, uh, and by the way, very safe uh, sort of environment in which to, uh, in which to uh, get on the same page. Across the country, corporations across all industries are emphasizing DEI initiatives. Tell us a bit about the importance of diversity and inclusion at UPMC. Sure. Um, from the day I arrived uh, at UPMC, I was committed uh, to diversifying the legal department so that it would better resemble our patient base and our insurance plan membership base. 
Uh, that's an extraordinarily diverse group. And uh, I believe that uh, getting the demographics of our, uh, of our legal department uh, toward that diversity is really a, a, a worthy goal in and of itself. Um, we also have a board that is very vigilant on this. And each year I'm called before the board and asked, where am I? Where is our legal department on this uh, diversity initiative? I can say we're making good progress from uh, the diversity standpoint, but it is a journey um, and we recognize that we have a lot further to go. One of the things we're trying to do is join with and collaborate with our outside counsel on that journey. So I ask our outside counsel, where are you and what are you doing in this regard? How can we help you? How can you help us? That, as a matter of fact, was a big major topic in the uh, uh, outside legal outside counsel conference that we just had uh, a couple of weeks ago. Great. Are there any regulations or legislation on the state and federal levels that you're keeping your eyes on right now? Uh, yeah, um, kind of everything. I mean, particularly with COVID, there's very little that's happening in Harrisburg or in Washington these days that doesn't have some impact on healthcare. Um, we're watching very closely now the reconciliation process that's going on at Congress um, as healthcare programs uh, flit into and out of uh, the picture as, uh, as Congress tries to put together some sort of budget and uh, some sort of program uh, for the nation going forward. We're getting close to the end of our show time to wrap things up with what we call in closing. Tom, I'm going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions that are a little on the lighter side. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. In your, uh, the amount of time that you don't spend in the office, what do you do outside of the office? Um, well, I'm married and I have two adult children uh, and a three-year-old grandson uh, who unfortunately is not close enough to, uh, uh, for our liking, but uh, he's, uh, he's a great kid. Uh, beyond that, I like to play some golf, just enough to frustrate me um, with something other than the frustration of work. Uh, we have a place uh, in the mountains that we try to visit every weekend uh, that we can get there. And when I'm up there, I like to hike and bike and, and, uh, and read quite a bit. Speaking of reading, is there a specific genre or author that keeps you your attention? Well, I'm a, I love Shakespeare and um, I, I can't say I'm a scholar, but I am a fan and I've sort of uh, dabbled in that area for, for quite a number of years. Um, right now I'm working, I'm actually working on an adaptation of the Merchant of Venice um, for the Pittsburgh Public Theater. Um, and uh, as anyone who knows Shakespeare knows, Shakespeare, uh, Merchant of Venice is one of his problem plays. And the root of much of that problem uh, is in the courtroom scene that is the centerpiece of the play. And so um, central to the adaptation we're working on is a reimagining of that, uh, of that courtroom scene. And uh, so that's where I'm trying to bring my lawyerly skills uh, into play. So when you were a prosecutor, what was the most fascinating part of criminal law? Um, well, both when I was a prosecutor and when I uh, went out into private practice, 
um, I practiced in an area that's known as white collar crime. Um, and that is an area that I've always been fascinated with in part because it exists at the interface between what is and isn't criminal and worthy to be called criminal. There's a lot of conduct out there that we may not agree with and that we might even find reprehensible that uh, uh, doesn't warrant um, uh, the, uh, the full weight of the criminal justice system on it or for which there are other solutions. Um, and so I've always been fascinated by where that line is uh, from a policy and a legal standpoint. Um, uh, when I was uh, in private practice, I spent about eight years uh, teaching a white collar crime course at the University of Virginia. Um, and then when I uh, moved over to UPMC, we decided that uh, having moved my practice away from that area and, and thinking about the optics of that, um, I decided to switch my area of, uh, of teaching to uh, uh, a course called the healthcare marketplace. And I've been doing that for about 10 years. Great. If you hadn't become a lawyer, what would you have become? Um, I, that's kind of easy. I would have become a teacher. I think that would have been my second choice. Um, I mean, teaching is what litigators do. Um, they learn something inside and out, and then they teach it to people, to a judge, to a jury, to someone they're trying to persuade to see things their way. Um, and so that, I think, would have been the, the area I would have gone. If I hadn't done that, um, I probably would have tried to be a professional football player. But, <laughs> but at uh, at five foot ten and 170 pounds and a slow 170 pounds at that, I'm glad I had a couple of better options in front of me. What area do you think you would have taught in? Would have been history? Um, yeah, I think so. I think I would have taught in in history or or English literature or some unmarketable area like that. <laughs> Great. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning about your career and your role in innovating healthcare. That will wrap up this edition of the Legal Innovators interview series. Be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Leslie Gromis Baker, co-chair of the Government Relations Group at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Thanks for listening.